When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You all set for retirement, mate? Yeah. My sis will look after me. Claire, did you win the lotto? Not my sister. My Seabus super income stream. Sis. Right. With as little as $80,000 super, Sis works with the pension to provide a steady paycheck even after you retire. Seabus. For all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Cohens and Jeff Lemon. We're together back in Melbourne. To be precise, we are at Glen Ferry Oval at Hawthorne, sitting on the bench uh, where the Hawthorne Football Club played between 1925 when they joined the VFL and 1973 when they moved off the Princess Park and subsequently VFL Park and a number of other home grounds before getting to the MCG. But this is, was, is and was the spiritual home of my football club. And as it happens, I'm staying up the road for the next couple of weeks. So Jeff's joined me here and it's the most perfect afternoon to record a podcast. Never let it be said that I don't do things to support the friendship um, being dragged down to Hawthorne's home ground. <laughs> when we do our next show from Cardinia Park, we, we will have levelled up the scores on that front. But look, it's it's a nice day. It's nice to be here. Um, we're, we're sitting partly in the sun. It's a pleasant time to be alive in Australia. Sorry for everybody who's everywhere else in the world where things are not so good. This is the bench where, I think, maybe not the last time I was here, but I wouldn't have been here many times since 2006 when the club moved on. And when they did move to VFL Park with their training facilities, they had a Legends game here to kind of say goodbye to Glen Ferry Oval. And I sat next to Jason Dunstall on this very bench and got a photo with him and my mate wow. Chris, which was a, a nice part of it. A train rattles by here. My dad, when he used to come and watch Hawthorne here as a kid, used to talk about the trains rattling past. And they could fit 35,000 people in here, which seems mm. remarkable uh, when you look at how little room there is. It's a very suburban-type setting. Not much much room on, on the railway side of the ground, but they used to squeeze them in there. It was called the, the, the glue pot, wasn't it, here back in the day. The Michael Tuck stand to our right, which was built in the 30s, had a renovation, I think, in the 80s. It's like Art Deco style and, mm-hmm. and it's heritage listed. And the Sandy Ferguson stand over behind the goals, which named after the long-term Hawthorne administrator. That was up in the 60s. And, yeah, I used to come down here as a kid and watch Hawthorne train. And the last time I was actually here was in 2013, the day after the grand final at Hawthorne. On one, they had a had a family day here, and indeed, in 1991, there's a there's a shot of my brother, which I'm visible in as well. The day before that grand final, when Hawthorne were training here on Melbourne Cup, not Melbourne Cup, that no, show show day, Thursday before the grand final, where Hawthorne are training, and there's a lovely photo where my brother is on my dad's shoulders, just over there beneath the Michael hmm. Tuck stand. So, yeah, ground with plenty of history for me and my family. The, the train line is so close.
close here to give you an image that I'm sure that a shanked kick on the wing could have landed a football on the train. They must have lost footies on the train before. Yeah, it must have. Well, even when, I suppose, when Peter Hudson kicking flat punts from this pocket, I mean, you can easily imagine a scenario where the ball would have ended up on the train. Someone just marking it out the window of the train. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. As they go by. As well as things you can get on board with, you can get on board the India Daily um, because we're going to start that up again for, well, the India England Daily, I suppose it will be, for to, to be more specific, um, because England playing four test matches in India, we're going to do the short daily podcasts, the 15-minute little jobs, so they'll be popping up in the feed if you're somewhere where you, you know, it's the wrong time of night for you, or you can't afford eight hours a day to watch test cricket like we can, then um, we'll try to summarise it for you in much less time. Yeah, a great response to this on social media last night when we announced, well, I know we put it into story time last week, but we dropped that out onto socials and and uh, people were very enthusiastic about the idea of us uh, getting back on the train, as it were, with those 20, 15, 20 minute or so wrap-ups at Stumps. I suppose it'll be about 10.30 at night, Melbourne time, when we gather each evening to record mm. that, but that'll be the middle of the day in England and, of course, a, a bit earlier in the evening in India by the time we get it published. So, yeah, no matter where you are around the cricketing world, I'm... Yeah, looking forward to having the chance to talk about that series and it promises to be a beauty and we're going to have a lot more about that on the show today talking to Vidushana Hantaraja, our friend and colleague from The Independent. Uh, he sat down uh, through Zoom with you, Jeff, and had a mm-hmm. chat about the series ahead. We've got lots of stuff out of Pakistan where they played their first test match against South Africa last week. Ireland have been playing Afghanistan. Bangladesh are hosting the West Indies. The Australian Cricket Hall of Fame have had some inductees during the week. All of that will be on the show, but we must start with the news of the last, say, 16 or so hours, which is that the Australian men's team will not now be going to South Africa. In some respects, this came as a surprise to me because everybody I spoke to at CA uh, was absolutely determined to see this get over the line. But where there was a, a bit of a disconnect between that mm. desire and the cricket imperative of getting there, and we'll come to that in a sec, there was this underlying fear that if one player or one member of the support crew became COVID positive, that would mean the whole tour would fall apart, much as it was when England were there in November. And given how much COVID is in South Africa with this new strain at the moment, it just wasn't a risk they were willing to take to go to all the effort of getting over there. Mm. So many moving parts. If one person ends up uh, contracting COVID, and we know how easy that can be, then the whole thing would have been in ruins anyway. So Mm. I can understand from a risk management perspective why this has been the decision taken, even if it does have cricket implications in the short term for Australia. Australia. And it isn't a great look either because the cynical perspective, and Dan Bredig put this to Nick Hockley, the Chief Executive of Cricket Australia this morning, Australia have found a way to meet their obligations with England last year and, and India this year, but every other obligation has been postponed or cancelled mm. due to COVID. So it does look a bit cute that the big three look after each other. However, as Nick pointed out in response, they can only play the ball as it comes and, and there's been reasons for each of those uh, series until until now being cancelled. I can definitely understand why Cricket South Africa are very, very shitty about this. Yeah. Because, look at it this way. I can understand calling off the tour because it does seem ridiculous to me to go on a tour when the virus is rife, when you're literally weeks ahead of a lot of people getting vaccinated. You know, the, the vaccination programs have already started in a bunch of countries. You could tour so much more safely in six months' time even. But that has been the case for months 
they could have made this decision months ago and it was an obvious decision I think to make months ago I was skeptical of the two are going ahead when we were talking about it in November or December because for exactly that reason that I was saying that the vaccination programs will start to come into effect in February March why would they go just before the vaccination programs come into effect it's a stupid idea and yet they've sat there insisting for months and months yeah we'll definitely go we'll definitely go and then pulled out at the last minute so they've made CSA undertake a, a huge amount of cost in the planning the preparation the commitments that CSA have had to make when they could have made this decision months ago so I think it's a clusterfuck on that measure alone and I think they've absolutely botched it on that measure. Don't you think though if CA had said in December we're not going to go but we'll let uh, Sri Lanka go and we'll allow India to come here and we'll have had our tour to England which was as hot spot with COVID as anywhere in 2020 it would have mm. been a terrible look had we it's I a say we had CA said well at least they've had a I, I, I think it's sincere they've had a proper crack at this I don't think that it's been a case of them doing it for performative reasons. I don't think that they were attempting or endeavouring to create a climate where it appeared as though they were going to go before strategically pulling out after, you know, after... I don't think it was that either. I I just think it was half-arsed. I I don't think it was an evil plan, but what the, the problems that they've cited that are stopping them from going have not changed for months. Those, the problems but they being, have ratcheted up. Like in the last month or so in South Africa, things have ratcheted up considerably with the second strain. Like when this conversation was have, being had between you and I... Their case numbers December, are much lower than they were a couple of months but ago. Not, but not compared to where they were when the second strain... Second strain went up and there was a the big uptick. But if you want to go back to December, they've still got a big problem over there, mm. which is comparatively new relative to what it was when we were last talking about this in depth. All I'm saying is, is that when Sri Lanka went there in December and played two test matches, it was under the same... Uh, the same circumstances mm-hmm. that Australia then would have been saying no to. Like, well, even so less stringent. You know, Australia yeah. had more stringent requirements, which were they did. which were all being agreed to. But fundamentally, what it's fallen over on is that Australia cricket Australia don't know what would happen if someone got sick. They don't know if they'd be able to get if a player or a staff member got sick. They wouldn't be able to get them back into Australia necessarily so they wouldn't be able to get them treatment at home and that's really the stumbling block but that has not changed in months that that was the same in December it was the same in November and so they've ultimately bailed out on the basis of something that they could have anticipated and in the meantime they've led on Cricket South Africa to to set things up and assume that it's going ahead and then pulled out at the last minute. They gave CSA a pretty good get out of jail card I reckon as well as far as potentially playing it in Australia and look I know Mm. that from a home ground advantage perspective you were then seeding away that but my cynical take last night was that Supersport underwrite CSA's mm. finances to a considerable extent like all broadcasters do that's not unique to South Africa but your, your major television partner being deprived of three test matches I would have yeah. thought that I mean, maybe I'm wrong but I would have thought that three test matches in Australia being used as a neutral venue or playing the home test away would have been a fairly suitable compromise in this scenario but evidently according to reports Graham Smith was never entertaining that it was raised in the Nick Hockley press conference today and he confirmed that they did put that offer and did repeatedly mm-hmm. I must admit when this came out last night I thought well 22 days to go Australia not leaving the country I should say for 22 more days maybe there is sufficient time uh, for them to renegotiate now with CSA Mm. but it sounds like there's no momentum for that at least publicly maybe someone's talking to somebody Mm. um, but that's not being let on uh, as far as the coverage so far. Have you got a sense of why you know aside from the TV broadcasters and and you would think that they would be able to broadcast it on Supersport anyway like it, it, it 
wouldn't be impossible for them to, whether they take a feed or, or even get crews over here. Absolutely. Why would there be such reticence to play it away, you know, aside from, I suppose, there'd be increased cost for CSA to put it on, but that might be partly eaten by CA in order to, you know, keep the relationship okay. Yeah, quarantine and South Africa's broader bilateral commitments was mm. one uh, one nugget that I saw cited yeah. but, but even were, that but I was South sort of Africa's thinking, players had agreed to, to do 14 days of isolation in South Africa before yeah that's Australia what I was going to say I was kind of thinking that there would have been isolation components to a playing mm. at home maybe it's just a pride thing the idea that they yeah. don't want to cede that ground in saying that we, we can't have it here we have to play it on on your turf mm. there's no real world test implications world test championship implications for south africa because they're well out of yeah. contention australia though the way this was reported initially and i must admit that the conclusion i first arrived at without thinking about it for 10 minutes was that oh well australia probably won't be able to get through that's not quite the case because the ICC guidelines per what was announced before Christmas is mm. that if a series is postponed or cancelled, it's not as though it's a zero-zero result. By that I mean it's not as though they consider the series to have been a, a nil or draw yeah. and thus you only get a percentage of the points available, no points available and, and go mm. down the percentages. You just stay where you are. Hmm. So that means Australia on 69.2 will stay on 69.2. Nice. Now, nice. Now, in order to have overtaken New Zealand, it is true to say they would have needed to have won two and drawn one. So it isn't better than what they would have needed to have achieved. Hmm. But it's not completely disastrous because had South Africa won a single test match out hmm. of the three, then this is exactly the same situation hmm. that They'd Australia be would be position. in now. Right. Potentially even a slightly worse position, as you say. So okay. what it means in practice is that there are a number of scenarios between England and India okay. that starts later in the week where Australia can still progress. A two-all draw being the most likely of those because, of course, the probability of a draw in India is you know fairly remote. We don't see mm-hmm. many draws in, in that part of the world. Certainly, Rancho Alexa. Ranchi is one, but you don't see loads of them. So, in other words, I think in one scenario where India win 1-0, Australia go through. Well, it's pretty unlikely India will win this series 1-0 and there'll be three draws, for example. And and, and likewise, if England win 1-0, I think, or if England win 2-1 or whatever. But 2-all, that could happen. Mm -hmm. And if it's 2-all, then India and England both... Um, slip beneath Australia at 69.2 and it's New Zealand against Australia at Lords. although yeah. I think it's now going to be played at the Rose Bowl but still it, it, the final would be a trans-Tasman affair New Zealand right. are guaranteed to go through because Australia can't overtake them so mm-hmm. they're definitely playing in that final and that's fairly good effort considering when they started their home summer I think they were fourth Yep. And they've managed to jump to second and they can't go any lower than that. So it's an interesting situation as far as the players go because when CA announced the two squads, the Test squad going to South yep. Africa and the T20 squad going to New Zealand, they made a point at the time of saying that the T20 squad is not contingent on the other series. Even if the other series is cancelled or can't go ahead for whatever reason, there won't be any changes. So you won't get you know Smith and Warner and so on being put into the T20 squad. You won't get anybody coming out of it. And so that T20 squad, which has some sort of understudy-type players in it, will still get to go. They all get their gig. And interestingly, I think most interestingly, the Matthew Wade decision, where a lot of people were talking about it as this is him being kicked out of the test team because he was on the T20 tour. I saw it more as he's a more useful T20 player than he is a test player. He's more valuable in that context. And he's the vice captain of that team at the moment um, and, and stepped into captain when Aaron Finch was injured over the Australian summer, but he 
now gets to play a tour as opposed to not getting to play a tour. If you're in the test squad, too bad. You, do, you don't get to be on that New Zealand trip. Yeah, there's a lot of this, isn't there? Wade's a great example of, of where... Yes, he has been dropped from the test team, but as we've you know discussed on this show a number of times, it, it isn't quite as mm. clear as that with this one because there's a T20 World Cup coming up in October. Australia have never won that competition. But where there's quirks, a number of the first-choice T20 players could well do with being in New Zealand. Mm. Alex Carey, Steve Smith, David Warner, Pat Cummins, Mitchell Stark, there'll be others I'm not Mm. thinking off from the top of my head. So yeah, it gives an opportunity to the BBL All-Stars as they've been dubbed in some reports. But in terms of gelling, we saw how well under Finch and Warner, to be fair, that T20 side was coming on a couple of years ago, or maybe even three or four years ago when they won a string of tournaments in a row. That's because Mm. they kept the same team together kind of series after series. As it'll turn out, this particular T20 team that plays in New Zealand won't be much at all like the one that'll play in the World Cup in October, and I don't expect they'll get to play a lot of cricket Mm. uh, of a 20-over variety between now and then. As for Test cricket, take Nathan Lyon. Nathan Lyon, who has been in the white ball squads recently, although not playing, he's been kind of a squad member, but he's not in New Zealand, but... Mm. Of course, no test matches in South Africa. Hockley's response today to the idea of them squeezing in another test series between now and the Ashes, he he didn't really give an answer to it, but I can't really see how. Mm. Jim Maxwell made a good point on Twitter. Why not send them to New Zealand as well, the test team, and and, and fit in a couple of test matches? Well, that'd be great, but I I can't see it happening. But Nathan Lyon... Why why would New Zealand want to risk... Dropping their points total. Well, that, that would be outside of okay. WTC, but but nevertheless, it's just as in it would be separate. Something just to a do. bilateral. Yeah, Something to, to do. Just, just a series. What are you to doing? Want to play a test match? Doing well, anything? Well, Something well, to do. It's how it was for 140 years, yeah. I suppose. But Nathan Lyon st- uh, finished the 1920 summer with 390 test wickets. He's now got 399. He'll probably still have 399 mm. when they play the first Ashes Test at the Gabba yeah. in November or even December. It mm. looks like with the schedule that might get pushed out because of the quarantine that might be required. Between between the T20 World Cup and the Ashes in Australia mm-hmm. uh, later in the year. So he'll pretty much go two years nearly, having only taken nine wickets. It's quite the crawl to 400 for him. Yeah, it's a, it's a real Dale Australian crawl, that one. Yes. <laughs> that one. And, you know, the, the pressure will be on, I guess. That'd be a funny sort of thing, playing two tests in a row at the Gabba. For a player in their career, you know, yes, two consecutive Brisbane Test matches. With, I doubt it's happened before. With nothing in between. Yeah, um, I suppose there might be a player who, who, uh, who got brought in for you know without playing Tests in between. Mm. But as far as the Australian national team playing yeah. twice at the Gabba, definitely wouldn't have happened before. <laughs> but there's other players too here. Sorry to, to jump in, but a number of players who are getting their chance to tour with the Test team. Think about Mark Steckity, mm. uh, and then think about Andrew Feckity. Back in 2015, he was going to go to Bangladesh. Look, he may have played. He's got to go. He's got to get him on the plane. He might have played. He might not have played. But that was cancelled a a couple of weeks before it went ahead. And he never got a look in again. And In fact, he's not even playing professional (laughs) cricket anymore, is he, Andrew Feckity? I don't think. Cricket Australia are like, they're just, they're that one mate that you've got who's always like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll be there. And then (laughs) then texts you at about half an hour past the the time being like, ah, you can't make it. (laughs) Yeah, well, Andrew Lowcock, who's a patron of ours, uh, said, uh, sent a message to Afghanistan cricket yesterday saying, what are you guys up to? Obviously, (laughs) 
joking because there's no way in the world that they'd have Afghanistan over here to to uh, to make up for the loss of Test cricket against South Africa. That's uh, let's not get carried away. Well, so, well I mean, you know, let's not say things how, we can't take how back. Much, how much money? How much money can we make up from? Not that much. So you've you've got Travis Head who made it into the Test squad, which was uh, I wasn't surprised. People were talking about that, but they've got so much invested in him long term. They really need him to come good as a leadership candidate and as a sort of into the future Test batting candidate. But it More is interesting. Upside than Matthew Wade was the uh, yeah. was the quote from Trevor Haynes, and that's true. He does. He's a younger well, man. Matthew Wade is. Uh, he would be in the top three probably best players in the T20 team. He's definitely not in the top three best players in the one-day team. Yep. I'd, I'd put it that way. Or in the test he, team. He, yep. Sorry, in the test team. He, he's so much more valuable as a T20 player. You know, in the in the test team, he's probably your ninth or tenth best player. And in the T20 team, he's in your top four or five at yeah, least. Yeah, and Hines was right to say that at that age, I think Wade's 33 now, mm-hmm. maybe even 34. If you go as long as he has without being a major influence in a test series, you're probably mm. going to lose your spot. And that's okay. Yeah. Like, you know, as much as it was when Joe Denley yeah. got left out of the England team last year. No, okay, that's fine. Like, He's he had played, a go. He played his role. He's had, had a go. Had a decent opportunity. And if you're in your early to mid-30s and you're not making piling on huge scores, you're probably going to have to make mm. way. What I did think, though, was that a lot of chat around captaincy since the Brisbane test. John Purick wrote a really interesting piece in The Age on the weekend about this too. Uh, the idea that th- there have been a lot of conversations behind mm. closed doors at Cricket Australia about what happens after Tim Payne. Mm-hmm. And not to say they've been they've been brought forward due to the loss against India, but it just it's a reminder that they're going to have to make a decision yeah. at some point soon. Alex Carey going on that tour as the backup keeper, for mine, I think think it would have been savvy to have actually given him a chance as a specialist player. I think they may have done so. And and to have said that, look, it it may not come off. It it may not be a long-term solution. But had he played three solid test matches as a specialist bat in South Africa, then had a pretty strong Ashes series after that, Mm. eight tests in, and then he becomes the wicketkeeper, and then they go, well, we've at least got an option, an alternative to Cummins. Now, I know that in the CA boardroom, they would love Cummins to be the captain, and rightly so. He's the... He's the man for all seasons. He's, mm-hmm. you know, Mr. Australia. And, and, you know, I can. there's great reasons for him to be the next captain of Australia. But yeah, on the, the other the, hand... The Chino modelling possibilities are vast, yeah, you know. Yeah. And uh, the fact that he's just a good human being, yeah. as we know, former guest of the final word and the generous one at that. But there's going to be resistance to him being captain because he's a fast bowler. Yeah, but also Australia Can't at the get moment around it. plays about three test matches a year. So if you <laughs> want to just... If you have a specialist test captain, as they have with Payne... Like, it kind of doesn't matter if it's... You, you don't need to worry so much about that, you know, the longevity or the injuries or whatever it may be because the, uh, I'm not even being that facetious. They play such little test cricket at the moment. Australia's plans for the next couple of years were already six or eight tests a year rather than the sort of 10, 12, 15 that England have been. Um, and Australia, I think it was eight. It would have been the one against Brisbane, three in, in South Africa, and then whatever they managed before New Year's against England for the Ashes. So they're not actually playing that much test cricket. I don't see why it's a problem to have a bowler as a captain. Yeah, 2022 is when they played tons of it, isn't it? So when they tour yeah. India... All, all Bang- four Asian countries away. Uh, right. So Bangladesh... Well, sorry. Yeah, not Bangladesh, but the other four. So they play Afghanistan, Afghanistan right. in India, and they play India away, Pakistan away, Sri Lanka away. That's right. And they probably have to make up that Bangladesh tour in that year <laughs> as well. So get all five going. They might give them two T20s yeah. in India yeah. while yeah. they're playing Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. At, at, at Eden Gardens. You can play us at Bangalore and Eden Gardens for a couple of T20s.
Jeez. The T20 squad was also interesting. Andrew McDonald's leading that with Justin Langer would have been with the test team. I wonder, well, actually, I know that Langer won't be with the, the T20 team because the yep. reason they, as they explained today, was that they've already begun their pre-departure quarantine for New Zealand. So I doubt they can um, yep. they can get Langer to New Zealand. We'll come to Langer in a bit. But with Andrew McDonald, he, as you say, would have had Matthew Wade there as his vice-captain. Aaron Finch coming off a shocker in the BBL, but of course, yeah. you know, still the captain of that team. Josh Phillippe We've set seen to him debut. come off shockers before and come good. I don't think people are too worried about his international, his ability to step up when he's playing for Australia compared yeah. to when he's playing for the Gades. Right. And, That's and never all, been an issue before. And it's, it's, a, it's not a good world to be in if you can get dropped for what you have or haven't done for the Melbourne Renegade. <laughs> you know, no. like that's just uh, who cares? In a no, way. The, exactly. Uh, Josh Phillippe was set to debut. That was exciting, and I suppose a chance for him to do some leapfrogging as well. Mm. Obviously, prodigiously talented ball striker. Yep. You know, as modern as they come. You know, dare I say, it got the Maxwells about him, and I think we're going to enjoy a long white ball career from him. But a player as talented as him, you can see why they'd want to see what else he could maybe do. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, he'll get his chance in New Zealand as the first choice keeper. Tanvir Sanger, the young off spinner from the mm-hmm. Thunder. Uh, I think he's, what, 19 years old now? Something like that. But he's been through the pathway. Smart judges like Chris Rogers reckon this guy's going to be a superstar. So one to watch and presumably will get at least a chance in New Zealand. Jumping Jai Richardson is back mm-hmm. into national colours. Many said, well, if he's fit to play T20s, why don't have him in the test squad? Because well, they're different. <laughs> Those are two different things. Yeah, I think the logic <laughs> being that he's obviously an exceptional red ball bowler. But yeah. I think they'll work him into it. Ooh. The fact that the T20 World Cup this year and he'd been so good in that T20 mm-hmm. team when they were building up two years ago, it makes sense to give him that opportunity. On the absolute face of it, it was right in that you looked at the test squad and saw Mark Steckerty and the T20 squad and saw Jay Richardson and said, well, why not swap him around? Yeah. But he's he's coming back off injury. He's fit to bowl four overs, but he's not fit to bowl 26 overs in a day. So th- that was the fundamental thing. So and you'll get some shield cricket at the end of the year, which is great. Yeah. Like if you're thinking about him for the Ashes, and I suppose why wouldn't you be, that he'll get to play maybe a couple of shield mm. rounds after they return from New Zealand. I hope that's the case. Uh, and then AJ Ty is also there, mm. a man who's been in the news in and the news. Doing, the, doing the virals during the week for oh. the end of that Big Bash uh, final. We'll talk about the Big Bash next week when it's all over, I think. The yep. final uh, is coming up on Saturday. There's the prelim between Perth and Brisbane on Thursday. I'm not sure why they're not calling it the prelim. It's the McIntyre Final Five. Mm-hmm. You don't need to fuck with the names. The prelim final precedes the grand final. Mm-hmm. The Sixers are already in that granny. It's at the SCG. They're hosting it. They're letting Mitchell Stark rest. Yeah, so as I say, more on the Big Bash next week with someone who's watched it more than, perhaps more than you and I. But AJ Ty was... Uh, a big talking point out of the final when yeah. James Vince didn't get to 100 after it. AJ bowls a wide. Now, Jeff, I'm not sure how much uh, time you spent across the press conference table from Andrew Ty, but I'm willing to stake most things on the fact that this wasn't shithousery. I reckon he just fucked up. Well, what bothered me about this was the number of people, the hordes of people who immediately said there is no way that was an accident. That was absolutely deliberate. And I'm like, how do you know? You Like, maybe it was. Maybe it was. You can't possibly know whether it was. And the number of people saying, there's no way a professional bowler gets it that much wrong. Have you ever watched cricket? How much <laughs> cricket have you watched? They do it all the time. They get it really badly wrong all the time. We've seen Pat Cummins hit first slip on the full without bouncing. We've seen... The Harmison ball, we've seen Daryl Tuffy bowl of 15 ball over, although, you know, who knows what was going on behind that one. But we have seen so many cold, ordinary... Lewis Gregory this season bowled one that missed the pitch and bowled one that hit the keeper on the full. (laughs) Like, you can fuck up. 
especially in T20 bowling when you're trying to bowl slower ball bounces drag it down whatever it is and yeah he drags it down a long way and it goes over the guy's head and maybe it was deliberate maybe it was like I can't say it wasn't but you can't say that it was you cannot possibly just assert that he definitely meant that based on the ball that is absolute numbskullery I reckon there are some cricketers where you might make the claim but I just think again from the, the limited time I've spent sort of on tour with these guys I just yeah. don't he doesn't strike me as the kind of cat who'd get up to that kind of chicanery for, for no even, reason either without like, even talking about character and stuff like you yeah just, just the cricket know. skills right yeah you just yeah. can't know and I reckon if you if you're measuring up the Venn diagram of all the people that hmm. were most effusive about AJ Ty and all of the types who were most effusive about Stephen Smith having been cheating or whatever yeah, a couple yeah. of weeks ago it'd be a circle it was the same you know it's the same people all the time yeah it was definitely I had some real numpties online messaging me about this and immediately making it into an England-Australia thing. They were mm. like, oh, you've got your nationalist glasses on. I'm like, yes, famous Australian barrack and me. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, I didn't realise that the Perth Scorchers versus the Sydney Sixers was a nationalist thing. You know? <laughs> I didn't realise. Oh, I'm obviously biased towards the Czechs notes. Perth Scorchers, my favourite team. Like, what are you on? And... Particularly, like, the other part of the the whole situation was it was actually kind of funny because James Vince dicked around for the previous two overs. He was facing Liam Livingston, who is the most part-time spinner you can get, and he nudged him for three singles in an over when Vince was on, you know, at 94 or whatever it was on. Ooh, well, I'll have a single there. I'll have a single there. It was like, come on, buddy. Like, if, if you want to get 100 in a game, you have to score 100 runs in the game. That's how it works. And you do that by taking a risk. You can afford to take a risk when you've got nine wickets in hand and five overs up your sleeve to win the game. Have a fucking go. And he, his last six scoring deliveries, five of them were singles. And then he had the goal to stand there and look hurt that he didn't get his 100. Like, come on, mate. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see that perspective. I, I would also note that if you've got that much time on the clock and nine wickets in hand, there is a certain etiquette about being nursed to 100. And when you're definitely going to win the game, I don't begrudge him for trying to get there carefully. I also think that it was pretty clear that he was, like, gutted that he's missed out on this ton and pretty quickly got over it. I mean, we're talking about, a, like, a five-second, oh, for fuck's sake. And well, he's like, oh, he did go straight up to AJ. So they, they did have that meeting in the middle they of the did, pitch. But, he cool. got on, but James Vince got on Channel 7, you know, 10 minutes later and was pretty passive-aggressive about it. He was like, oh, only he's going to know if he meant to do it. He nearly hit himself on the toe, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. was just a bit like cracking the sads about it. And I was like, okay, you had, the player, had the you had this in your own hands. You could have scored 100 That's and you right. didn't. It's he, on yeah. you. Yeah, he had control over it. But yeah, I'll just temper that by saying that not many players on 94 with nine wickets in hand with six eight runs to get would try and hit a six like the, the etiquette usually to is to play six, the way they did he hit a couple of fours like, wasn't that his, his, I, I didn't watch it because mm. seldom had the big bash on uh, this I season but, it, but yeah. the, the, the bloke up the other end I gather had a streaky boundary Daniel unexpectedly Hughes, uh, well he played a sort of flinch pull shot and got four because it happened to hit a right. gap yeah. and so that meant that then he needed to block out the next three balls which he did and I kind of feel that by that point of an innings when you're a bowler bowling to someone who's just forward defending you back at some point you think like well what am I here for am I here to dish up milestones for the other team and in that situation I can kind of understand someone who goes well I'll just pop it over his head too bad buddy (laughs) he had his shot and he didn't take it what I'm going to do is to note the fact that he's had a bit of a rough week on Mm -hmm. the Twitters and a bit of a rough week in the internet, uh, AJ Ty is going to be our C-Bus Super Performer of the Week. <laughs> not because of the why, but just because, you know, when everyone's out there calling you a fuckwit, and you're probably not, mm-hmm. it's kind of a tough beat. Yep. So, And he's playing for Australia in a couple of weeks as well, back into the squad. Good on him. 
Yep. What is your projected total for retirement, James Vince? It's 98, I'm afraid. Um, visit cbussuper.com.au. You can get a PDS there. You can remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Sort out your superannuation. Go on. cbussuper.com.au forward slash the final oh, yeah. word. Look at the landing page that we have. And from there, it's very easy to find your way through to an expert at Cbus Super who can help you sort out your super. Why not do it in 2021? I reckon I was like 31 when I worked out how to sort out my super, which was like 10 years too late. So get ahead of the curve, get yourself sorted out. And of course, as you say, there's all the disclaimers and all the rest, but cbussuper.com.au forward slash the final word, find out some more. Uh, Justin Langer has been having an interesting week. The, the Andrew Wu piece that came out in the what are they now? The nine entertainment mastheads, which suggested he'd been briefed pretty extensively by some people uh, close to the team. I don't know if they were players or not, but about players being a little bit over Justin Langer's coaching technique. I've got to say, my main response to this was, if you've been in a quarantine bubble with someone for about six months, they will be giving you the shits. Like, have you ever had a housemate? Just multiply that by about 25 and you're like oh Justin he never takes the bins out oh Justin why do you why, why do you have a kitchen sponge in the bathroom what were you doing with the kitchen sponge in the bathroom it's not where they're two different kinds of sponges the kitchen ones and bathroom ones so keep them separate you know and I just read it as that really yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd note there was a Chris Barrett, Andrew Wu piece, and Barrett uh, finishing up on the sports desk to become the uh, Southeast Asia correspondent for that organisation. A fair way to go out with this uh, big story on Saturday, wasn't it? It really did focus the attention of the of the cricket world for, a, for a, I suppose, a, a decent 12 hours or so, and that, that really happens with cricket news, but everyone was reading this because it was such a meaty piece. But, yeah, whatever's going on in there has prompted a number of people in that dressing room to talk and that is unusual. Certainly in my time covering cricket, you might have a disgruntled person, but this is clearly disgruntled people over a number of things. And look, you know, it, it ranges from anger management through to citing you know, Alex Ferguson in his team talks. It, it, it goes from, you know, the way in which he was uh, addressing them tactically before bowling um, through to Manus Labashain and the toasted sandwich, which became a, an extraordinary point in all of this. <laughs> and, yeah, there, there was a really interesting follow-up as well that Willie wrote uh, an analysis piece where Langer immediately uh, got on the WhatsApp group, the team WhatsApp group, and he was unhappy that this story had even... Yeah been a thing and I get that too I get that if you're the coach of the team and you feel as though there are people inside the dressing room briefing against you you'll be furious and I you know Langer has got that streak in him we've all seen how angry he can get and inside that bubble as you say that that might be challenging so it feels as though there might have been a a slight change in perspective from him though between Friday, Saturday mm. and Sunday, Monday. Friday, Saturday, those quotes in the Barrett Wu story, he's quite defensive, certainly when talking about his approach. I mean, I haven't got the quotes in front of me, but he's pretty much saying, come on, fair's fair, I'm you know, just doing my job, boys. Yeah. Through to Sunday, Monday, when he did a dead set media blitz, he was everywhere. He did an interview with Crick Info, he did a cricket podcast, so he did the Australian Cricket Podcast with uh, Pete Lawler and Gideon. He even did a podcast, some weird podcast called Curveball. He was everywhere. He was everywhere. Uh, I don't mean it's a weird podcast. I mean, it's weird to see the Australian coach bob up on a podcast that has nothing to do with cricket, or so I could tell. My mm. point here is that he was on the front foot telling a different story then about how he had listened um, to what had been seen, that it'll make him a better coach for what had been said over the weekend, I think he added, and that it had been a bit of a wake-up call, I think was the pull-out quote from the Breedig piece. So mm. from being quite defensive to quite 
conciliatory would suggest to me, reading between the lines, uh, that he knew he had to change tone a little bit because it's unsustainable uh, to be in a situation where you're the coach of a team. If a number of people inside the dressing room have it in for you and a briefing against you, that whether it's politics or sport, it can often be a long way back unless you unless you show a bit of contrition and mm. it feels like Langer might be taking that approach. Yeah, I, I find it hard to know what to make of what Justin Langer says sometimes because he says a lot of different things and they're not always necessarily like they don't have that much of a link to one another some of the time yeah they, you can find a quote from him to support just about any position it seems <laughs> i don't know there's this off the cuff nature where Malcolm he, he says what feels right at the time yeah yeah um but it's not necessarily part of a consistent suite of opinions yeah yeah i think that's i think that's a fair point and look i I, I just jokingly compared it to Malcolm Turnbull. The difference there, of course, being that Turnbull's a, a finely tuned or was a finely tuned politician. Justin Langer coaches a sports team. Mm. We shouldn't hold them to the same standard. You'd, I think Langer, on the whole, is a is an authentic mm. guy. I don't think that he goes out of his way to be disingenuous. It's just that no, sometimes the comments can jar when you compare one to the next and the flips the, from one position to the next. And yeah, I, I don't think he's deceptive, but it's yeah. whether he holds on to... Like, him coming out and saying this is a wake-up call now, does that mean much in two months' time? Is he going to be actually keeping that in mind in two months' time? I don't know. And, and uh, you know, I haven't had a lot of dealings with him, but he can be a pretty intimidating guy. He's got... He does have... He does sort of radiate this intensity. When he's not happy, you know he's not happy. And imagine um, that when you're in a bubble with him yeah. for month after month. I mean, we've seen at close quarters that, you know, he can be a scary dude. I mean, scary might not be the right word. Scary is almost certainly not the right word, but you know what I'm trying to say. He can... He can come across as somebody who you do not want to get on the wrong he, side. He can of. tell you that he's mad from eighty metres away. By the way, yeah. he's standing. I've seen know? the way he's looked at you. <laughs> I've, I've literally seen the way yeah. he's looked at you in the food queue last year, last year, um, or a couple of years ago during the World Cup. I mean, it doesn't take much to read between the lines with the body language there. Mm. And if and if if you're in a, a setting like a bubble, which we know is notoriously difficult, where you're in each other's shit day in, day out, it would yeah. amplify all of that, surely. But yeah. maybe the fact that this South Africa tour isn't going ahead is a blessing in disguise for Yeah, Langer. I was thinking that. Just giving well. us a chance to chill and come back and see these blokes in three months' time or whenever they have their next high-performance camp in Brisbane or, you know, the next time they come together over winter, that they can kind of step back from it all and, you know, just take a big, deep breath and he can evaluate where things went wrong. The players can measure where they they may have got it right or wrong as it relates to their relationship mm-hmm. here with him and so on. And look, because a lot of the attention was on on Labuschagne and, and the and the toaster sandwich, I mean, impossible to avoid talking about that. It, it perhaps distracted initially from those more serious bits, but I mean, just on the sandwich, I mean, I just want to say that I think a lot of people have stuff with food and adolescence which morphs into their young adult lives. I, you know, mm. I, I did. So I think that the burrito on the toilet thing from last year with him... <laughs> Uh, and now the sandwich in the pocket thing. I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I'm not trying to judge. I'm trying. We, we probably should give him a little little attitude on this because, as I say, people have things with food. Food can be quite a personal thing, and I don't know whether we should mm. automatically assume everything about Manus based on what we know from this incident. But what we perhaps can conclude is that it is not helping his brand right now alongside the excessive appealing Friday night at the Big Bash. I'm not sure if you caught that, but it looked absolutely ridiculous. The chat under the lid on day five at Sydney and then throughout the course of the Brisbane Test match, really. I think that 
when you see this captaincy conversation had about who might lead the team post Tim mm-hmm. Payne and reflexively people talk about Marnus Slabashane on account of the fact that he's the best player in the team and they might make him captain of Queensland next year. I've seen there's been some reports around that. It sort of suggests to me that that might not be the logical next step for him. There might be some other, you know, other mm. parts of the Marnus Slabashane painting, if you like, to be to be coloured in, or you know, the picture to be coloured in, before we start thinking of him as the as the leader of the the national cricket team, which we know can be high pressure, relentless scrutiny, and everything that goes hand in hand with that. I think maybe even though it means nothing, the sandwiching might just be a reminder just to just chill on this guy and, and let him do what he needs to do to make his way through life before yeah. throwing the fucking captaincy of the Australian team yeah, at him. Let him actually be a person first yeah, yeah. before you try to saddle him up with anything else. I, I think that makes sense and maybe the New Zealand T20 trip can be a bit more fun, a bit less intense and then they can come back to well, it. Well, that was interesting, in that, that months, fun bit. I mean, I don't think that was unrelated to the story. I don't think that was unrelated to the story. The fact that there's going to be a bunch of players that get to go to New Zealand for a T20 trip not under Justin Langer. I mean, you look down the list, I mean, the, the first thing that people noticed was that there was nine West Australians and no Queenslanders on that trip. Admittedly, that's because a few Queenslanders were meant to be going to South Africa for the, the test tour, which was, you know, the, the senior squad of the two, but also that it looks like just a more fun place to be. When you look down that New Zealand touring party, I mean, I described it as the party bus yeah. uh, on Twitter at the time, and I don't think that's necessarily unrelated to the story that appeared on Saturday. The Hall of Fame... This week, not our Hall of Fame, the actual Hall of Fame, no, the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame. Um, the Well, a, a duo that can't be separated, really. Unaraman, uh, a.k.a. Johnny Muller, the, one of the original, well, the, the original and the best player on the Aboriginal tour of 1868. And Merv Hughes, they go hand in hand, don't they? <laughs> they, both, they both have a history at the MCG. They do. Um, we can, both that, Victorians? Yep, proud Victorians. But, well, you know, I, I'm not sure that Naraman would have had a lot to, to think about as, you know, the idea of being Victorian or in a state named after the Queen of England. But, but you know, they're in the Hall of Fame together, which is weird, but there you go. Yeah, so, I mean, the Johnny Muller announcement was made during the Boxing Day Test match and was received... In great spirits then. I mean, I suppose the difference with with Johnny Muller compared to everybody else in that Hall of Fame is that he didn't have that international career that he otherwise may have. He was, of course, the most important player on the 1868 trip, taking 245 wickets at 10 and scoring 1,698 runs along the way too. Of course, played in just the third game ever at the MCG a couple of years before that on Boxing Day 1866. Got a chance to play one first-class game 10 years after that, also at the MCG. But usually when we think of Hall of Fame, we think of like, a career like Merv Hughes, who played 52 test matches, you know, 212 wickets, a sort of champion of that Allen Border team in a really important era. Whereas, yeah, Johnny Muller's a different kind of story. And it, no, no, not one player is more valid than the other. But, um, yeah, contrasts, but both members of that very elite group of players that have been gonged over the last 20 years. I'll tell you what I noticed, which it just hadn't occurred to me before because I had not assumed this would be the case. I mean, I had noticed, for instance, that the first female inductee to the Hall of Fame was in 2014, um, and we're currently up to five, <laughs> an entire five women in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Great work, um, and good, you know, good to just back that up with two blokes this year, because, you know, well, oh, ladies, you know, ladies, they, oh, they dabble, you know, they pop in, they roll the arm over. But I also noticed that um, Charles Bannerman's not in the Hall of Fame. 
which which kind of blew me away. The first year, what, 2000 or whatever it was, they put about 15 people in. The the obvious suspects, you know, Bradman and Clary Grimmett, naturally, and, uh, you know, the, the the big names of yeah, the early ten, years. Yeah, 10 went in in 1996, and then they went two each year from 2000 after that. Right. And there have been a few years with only one. Steve Wall went in on his own, and Shane Warne went in on his own. But Charles Bannerman, never been there. The, the first century made in test cricket and obviously the holder of the Bannerman record the longest standing record in cricket and maybe in any professional sport who knows um, if there's a, a record that's been held for 150 odd years for the, the highest percentage of runs in a team total so he's not in there Charles Bannerman's not in the fucking Hall of Fame and I, I know he didn't play a lot of test matches but he played test matches he went on to become a test umpire why isn't he in there? he's got to go to India Charles Bannerman's <laughs> got to be on the plane to India why isn't he in there well there's a third inductee to be named on Saturday when they do their Australian Cricket Awards so the artist formerly known as the mm-hmm. AB Medal Night it's like a Zoom event I think on Saturday yeah. where they're going to put a third but I'd imagine that would be a woman by the way because yeah. they've had a woman in each in each year since 2014 but, but look it might be it might be uh, um, Charles Bannerman there. And if it's not, we'll spend 12 months campaigning for it. Mm. Alongside the public holiday we want for Peter Siddle Day, we'll be pushing CA to acknowledge that Charles Bannerman should be in the Hall of Fame. Maybe he could be the... I think there's 45 people in there at the moment, mm-hmm. something like that. Maybe he could be the 50th. Nice round number. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I certainly don't want him to wait long enough to be the 100th. Uh, shall we... Shall we frolic? I think we should, Jeff. How should we do that? Let's play a little game, people. Let's going to play a little game called... I've got an oval here. I can really let this go. Nerd Pledge! Yes, several people looked at me from the far side of the oval. Well done. <laughs> Nerd Pledge. It's a game that we play on this show with people from our patron page. Bless them. They support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents, but it's not a normal number. It's a cricket number, but we don't know what the cricket number means, and we have to work it out. The first on our list today, MJ Noster, long-time friend of the show, The Subtle Knife, uh, big fan of the works of His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. MJ has sent through... $2.01, which, of course, the obvious link for 201 is Jason Dizzy Gillespie, making 201 in Bangladesh, as we've discussed 48 times on this show. But there's got to be something else. Given given her Dutch allegiance, Adam, that's what I sent you off with. Could you find something to do with the Netherlands and 201? I could. I could. And uh, and it had to be this. I'm surprised that we haven't talked about this before on reflection. So, given how much attention we've paid to to Dutch cricket over Mm -hmm. the years. So, Holland beat Australia in 19 so this was the, the Ashes trip of 64. Australia win, uh, well, they retain uh, the Ashes in England and then mm-hmm. they, they play a couple of other games, one of them in Holland. It wasn't unusual in that era for the tour to include some games in different parts of Europe, Scotland. I think in 89 they went to Scotland, Denmark and, and Holland. But It's in, not unusual <laughs> to play games in Denmark and Holland. <laughs> in 64 they went to The Hague for the right reasons. They went there with Slobodan. <laughs> Um, uh, and uh, it was on a it was on a concrete pitch. <laughs> they went to the Gideon. <laughs> they went to the Gideon. They didn't go to the uh, Slobodan Milosevic Hague. And yeah, so that Australia made 197. It was a it's kind of before the days of limited overs cricket in the way mm. that we would know it. It was just a one day one innings game. As it happened, Australia were bowled out after 50.1 overs, so it worked quite neatly. Four one ninety seven. Norm O'Neill top scored for 87. Uh, mm-hmm. Bob Simpson wasn't captaining. Brian Booth was doing the job that day. There was 15. 15,000 people watching them duke it out on a concrete pitch with some matting over the top. Hell yeah. So they were doing it old school. But no, then 
pressing fast forward, the Dutch need 13 off the final over. Um, and it's to be oh, bowled hello. by Bob Cowper, who picked up... I bet up Peter Boren was playing. <laughs> yes. 1964, Peter Boren was out there. <laughs> He's probably listening. Uh, Bob Cowper, who'd taken four wickets uh, on, on the afternoon, uh, was charged with the responsibility of getting the last over in with 13 runs to play with. But then a man by the name of Rudy Onstein went 6-4-6 six, six, and did it in three balls and Holland finished on 201... <laughs> And they win the match by three wickets. So Onstein, as I went on to find later, had a long involvement with cricket as an umpire. He's he's listed more as an umpire than yeah. a player in Holland. He he oversaw many games, and then he became a journalist. So in the 2003 Cricket World Cup, where Holland featured in South Africa, he was the only Dutch journalist travelling with the team, yeah, right. and he also doubled up as their as their media manager. So um, yes, yeah, so Abhishek Mukherjee supplied a lot of the information about that game in in 1964. I should note that. That was the tour where Australia also lost to Glamorgan. One or two times they yeah. lost to Glamorgan, but when you're there at Cardiff... Didn't uh, we talk about that the other week? I think we did, yeah. When, you, when you're at that uh, Sophia Gardens in Cardiff, there, there are a number of different parts of the museum there which recognise their, their wins over Australia in, in those touring games in 64 and 68, I think they were. So I'm pretty sure, given that MJ Noster loves Dutch cricket, that's going to be it. Yeah. Maybe we talked about Gloucestershire beating Australia. They're, they may have as well. Uh, they're the one I always forget. <laughs> um, the, the forgotten Shire. All right. Well, that works for me, uh, MJ201. Next up, Andrew Singleton has sent through $2.90 with a hint. Uh, you don't have to send a hint, but Andrew has. The hint says, uh, World Series cricket ODI glory days of the early 80s and a stunning cameo. Yeah, well, originally I was looking at the World Series cricket days as opposed to the World Series Cup, if you, if you like. So that's because I missed a bit about the 80s. And the only thing that stood out for 290, which was quirky and of interest, was that in consecutive super tests, mm. the World Eleven and the West Indies Eleven both mm. made 290. And in both innings of 290, Viv made century. So Viv was playing for both the World Eleven mm. and the West Indies that summer of 1977-78. And so wasn't Viv's best test score 290 or 291? It was 291. Yeah. So we're close. There we go. I like it. Well done. But no, that won't be it. But yeah, just to say that I didn't dog it. I did do some research. It was okay. just the wrong research. All right. Um, you were in the late 70s rather than the early 80s. So I was looking in the early 80s. I did find that in November 1980, the Australian in a World Series Cup. So if you're confused, Kerry Packer had World Series Cricket, that was the breakaway series, and then once the Australian Cricket Board got cricket back, they kept the name, but they played the World Series Cup that was the one-day tri-series uh, each summer. In one of those games, the Australians set New Zealand 290 to win in November 1980, and what could be called a cameo was Sean Graff, who only played a handful of matches for Australia took two for 40 from eight overs so it could have been that wasn't quite that I don't think as, as a kid I used to detest Sean Graff irrationally mm. because he was uh, of course he went on and had a long and distinguished career as, a, as an administrator with Victoria and played for years for Victoria but in the early 90s he was kind of coming to the end of his grade career mm. and he was um, and he was and my cousin was playing with him at St Kilda and he was often not in the ones because Sean Graff was still playing at about <laughs> age 45 or something like that I'm like you should have my cousin in the ones <laughs> anyway that's the way my brain was wired as a, even as a nine year old yeah and weirdly Sean Graff um, left cricket behind um, you know 
uh, married Andre Agassi and had a really happy <laughs> life ever since. So I don't think it was Sean Graff. I did think for a second it could have been Wayne Phillips. That's Wayne B. Phillips, not Wayne N. Phillips. Okay. Uh, the wicketkeeper Wayne Phillips because I was looking at cameos and there was a World Series Cup game where Flipper Phillips came in right at the end against India and smacked 23 off eight balls, which is a strike rate of 288. It's almost 290, but it's not quite. Okay. It's not quite. It wasn't there. It wasn't close enough. But where I've landed is I reckon that the 290 actually refers to 29. And if we're talking cameos, it belongs to the Indian player Kirti Azad. December 1980, India playing New Zealand in the Tri-Series. They're 119 for eight. But from number nine, Kirti Azad waxed 29 at a runner ball. Gets them to 162. Doesn't seem like enough, but they bowl out New Zealand five runs short. His run's crucial. His cameo, his 29, and they win the game. And uh, even more interesting is that Kirti Azad batted at number nine, didn't get a bowl. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the touch of the Jody Hickses, where he got them the runs they needed from nine and then didn't get to roll the arm over with his off break. So, so they only used five bowlers and uh, got rid of New Zealand for 150. So yeah. that's my nom. That, that feels like it's got more cameo energy than any of the other nominations. So thank you to Andrew Singleton for 290. The final nerd pledge today is from Alex Browner. A re-pledge number from him. Alex has been on the show before, but this time 156. And we know it's going to be a New Zealand link because it has mm. been in the past. And Jeff, it actually didn't take me long to get this one. Vaughan Brown was the 156th man to play test cricket for mm-hmm. New Zealand. He played a couple of tests as an off-spinning all-rounder in 1985. But Any um, relation to Alex Brown? Uh, well, look, it might be. It might be. I, I, we will find out, I'm sure, when, when Alex confirms mm-hmm. or denies that we've gotten this correct. But he took just one test wicket at an average of 176 in his two test matches against Australia. But it was a very relevant wicket at mm-hmm. Brisbane in 1985. Of course, Richard Hadley takes nine for 52. At one point, he had eight wickets and then down the other end, Vaughan Brown <laughs> takes the ninth. Picks up the scalp. <laughs> and it was taken by Richard Hadley. It was, uh, oh, it, it was Jeff Lawson. Catch, yeah, that's right. So Jeff Lawson's facing, you know, tonks it out to mid-wicket. And I think running back with the flight, according to Bryden Coverdale, who, of course, wrote a piece uh, about uh, Vaughan Brown and his one wicket in Test cricket, as was Brido's want when he was on the cricket beat and before he was a celebrity um, working on Channel 7. I saw Brido's photo in the Herald Sun the other day. I'm like, man, this guy's got real big now. But no, he, he uh, Richard Hadley Good took shot. the one catch. <laughs> that denied himself a tenfer. The next over, Hadley gets the tenth wicket, his ninth, and it's taken at short leg by Vaughan Brown, mm. the wicket of Bob Holland. So, yeah, in the end, he only played those two test matches, but he'll always have, uh, I suppose, that, that piece of trivia that he was the bloke that broke the tenfer, and his one test wicket was one that uh, we still remember till today, the 156th test cricketer for New Zealand, Vaughan Brown. There we go. Um, if you want to play Nerd Pledge, very easy. Go to patron.com slash word. You sign up there, you set your amount, uh, we will get notified of the number and you can help keep the show going. Lovely stuff. Jump on board if you're so inclined. Break time? So it is. And when we're back, we'll be going to Pakistan. At least we'll be talking about Pakistan. We'll be talking about Bangladesh. We'll be talking about what's going on in the UAE. And then we'll be chatting to Vidushan Ahandaraja. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. If you're out at Glenferry Oval and all of the mobile towers go down, you've got no means of communication, you're stuck, you're out in the wilds, you've got no way to contact any Geelong supporters, what do you do? You turn to the Zolio. It's a little magic box, it lives in your pocket, and it turns your smartphone into a satellite phone, just like that. What did I say the other week? 
size of a pack of smokes. You can stick it in your pocket, and Healthier. one day it might save your life. Unlike Bizarre. the smokes, Leo <laughs> is there for all of us to protect us if we get in strife, and we need to take out insurance mm-hmm. against this type of stuff in yep. life. You can't just assume it's going to be smooth sailing all the time. Otherwise, why would you insure your car? Think of it the same, but you're purely insuring your life. <laughs> you're insuring yourself <laughs> against getting lost up a mountain. Or worse still, not having phone reception at King's Cross Railway Station <laughs> when I get back there later in February. <laughs> now, I've talked about satellite networks on the show before. Everybody knows I'm enthused about satellites. They orbit the Earth at extremely high altitudes. We've had a fair bit of back and forth about what the altitudes are, but I finally got this solved because Helen Maynard Casely, listener to the show, yep. knows scientist. about space, professional space yes. scientist, and has sent me a message. A rocket scientist. A literal rocket scientist. As the self-appointed TFW space correspondent says, Helen, Zolio uses the Iridium satellite network, who only orbit 800 kilometres above us. The old satellites in this network were the ones that would give iridium flares as they caught the sun and looked like a bright flash in the sky close to dusk. Though many satellite networks, says Helen, use geostationary orbits which are much higher at 36,000 kilometres. So I think I said 16,000 to begin with. I split the difference. The highest are 36,000 and the iridium network, which the Zolio uses, is 800 kilometres above us. And that iridium network means that you can send a message from literally anywhere on the planet to literally anywhere on the planet on your smartphone using the little magic box. Is there anything Helen can't do? She's, nope. she's a rocket scientist. She feeds us information. She she literally wrote a children's book and gave it to my daughter. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's just one of the favourite people of the final word community that we have out there. And I'm glad we know more about satellite technology. Because as I say, why wouldn't you get it? Mm. It's just solio.com. It's, it's, it's such a great opportunity to have with you whenever you don't have the ability to talk to someone else. If you're out late at night and, and it's all going to shit, You've got your Zolio. You'll be able to put out that late-night text to see who's up. If you're somewhere on a train line where there's one bar and you can't get any reception out and all the rest of it, I took the train from Melbourne to Sydney. Couldn't send a message the whole way. I don't know what it is about trains. If you have a Zolio, no problem at all. So little box, hits the satellite, it connects to your smartphone and you can send a text to any phone number in the world or a message to any email address in the world and you can do that from anywhere for anywhere for a very modest monthly subscription it's the way to go z-o-l-e-o zolio.com get it hi my name's kate cross and you're listening to the final word with adam and jeff it's the final word adam collins and jeff lemon coming to you from glen Ferry oval in hawthorne and now we're going to think about Karachi in Pakistan, where the home side went 1-0 up against South Africa in their first test match. Barbara Azam, his era as skipper, begins in the best possible way. Farwad Alam, great story. Man of the match after his century in the first innings after coming in in real strife. Let's start there, Jeff. Pakistan at one stage in their first innings were 4 for 27 after they bowled out South Africa for, I think it was 220, but nevertheless, they're, they're behind in the test match. And then Farwad Alam, what an amazing story. Ten years out of the test team, got a chance in England last year and now he struck three tons in quick succession and he's one of the true great news stories of world cricket at the moment one of the best images i've seen for so long was Fahad alam coming in after his hundreds sliding down on one knee holding the bat in sort of dramatic style like he was about to start strumming it you know playing a bit of wonderwall the fist pump the mustache like all of it and you know, this is a guy who has just chipped away down the run mines 
about 15 years mm. before getting his shot. Well, I mean, you know, he had a very early shot but didn't get a proper shot. And he's been able to, you know, we saw him make the 100 in New Zealand and then to come back and do it at home. Just the fact they were playing at home, like their the first series in Pakistan against South Africa in 13 years, everything about it felt so good. He's not thrown away his shot. Alexander Hamilton vibes um, from <laughs> forward alarm. Yeah, look, I, I just think that everything about this test was just absolute joy from the coloured seating around the stadium at Karachi to the noise the ball made off the bat. What a triumph that we were able to watch it in a non-geo-blocked way on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I know the series wasn't deemed worthy enough to put on television here. It was in the UK. When I say here, I mean Australia. But we got to watch it anyway, and maybe that's a bit of a can of worms. Maybe we'll see more cricket for free supplied by boards on their YouTube channels. And if that is the case, then, well, that's a triumph for all of us, really, because this was so much fun uh, settling in each night and, uh, you know, the rhythms of test cricket. You don't need to watch every ball. You just need to get a feel for it and a flavour for it. And I feel like we were all kind of collectively tapped into this test match. Yeah. And had it not been available, it would have been purely through scorecards. But there's something in the watching of test cricket and mm. the, watching the way that Yasir Shah celebrated all eight wickets that he took during a test match and watching the way they fought back with the bat, watching the way that South Africa had to grind it out in mm. the third innings. I mean, Rassi well, van der Dusen and, and Aidan Markram both making half centuries they are the new engine room of South African cricket mm. and whilst they didn't win under Quentin de Kock they might very well end up being his most two important batsmen it's like you need to see it to understand it and we got to see it last well, week the other part of the YouTube thing was being able to go back and watch whichever sections I wanted to um, yep, when, when I felt like it so you know that last half hour of the day when South Africa lost wickets in quick succession at the end of the day when they, it looked like they'd sort of battered themselves you know, towards the lead in the third innings and then suddenly it all fell away, you know, Yassir Shah just at them, and I was able to go and sit back and watch that whole last hour, not live, but about an hour after it had happened, and, and get the full sense of how it had panned out. Yassir Shah, Jeff, what a bizarre career he's having. I mean, what is it, fastest to 200 test wickets, but has these two horrendous tours in Australia, mm-hmm. little better in England with the exception of his first test match back there in yep. 2016. He goes through stretches where you think he cannot take possibly take mm. a wicket, and then in Pakistan, he looks like he's going to be a world beater back at home after never having played a test match there till 2019. Yeah, he uh, went ahead of Shane Warne for career strike rate during that last test match, so just nudged ahead of him 234 wickets at the stage of his career when Warne had 207. So he's, he's taken wickets more prolifically. He's been a lot more expensive. He's gone for 30-plus per wicket rather yep. than 23 or whatever it was for, for Warne at that stage of his career. And, and he got teamed up with Norman Ali, who who was the classic mould of Pakistan left-arm spinners, about 35 years old. You've never heard of him before. He looks like he's seen some things. You know, He's had some long days in the sun. And yet he just pops up suddenly and bowls beautifully. Uh, took, took a five for in the second innings. He yep. was the first Pakistani left-arm spinner to take five wickets on debut. There's that. They've had a lot of quicks take five for on debut, but never a left-arm tweaker. Probably quite a few left-arm quicks as well. It, yep. it reminded me of Zulfikar Baba when he played exactly against like Australia Zulfika. back in 2014. <laughs> Debuting at age 35, looked like he was 47, and immediately landed the ball in a threatening bit. I mean, you know, this guy was, judging by some riding out of Pakistan last week, he was miles away from international selection a couple of years ago. 
had a huge domestic season and finds himself in, in the test team. It's a great yeah. story and, you know, picked at the right time. We saw Bilal Asif when we were in the UAE uh, mm. two years ago, Jeff, do a similar thing where he immediately made an impact. I think Six he was five. a bit younger. He might have been 31 or 32 <laughs> or something. But they've got this amazing ability to pick spinners very deep into their career mm. probably only for a short time but they, they form the view that it's better to do it that way than to spend years and years investing in finger spinners they mm. just pick them late and look if it works for you go with it yeah I mean and, and it did work and it was also enjoyable to have a name up on the screen that looked a lot like Newman so every time <laughs> I saw it I went hello Newman <laughs> coy oh I'm not being coy so th- that was enjoyable as well. so, so the next test match uh, starts on Thursday at Royal Pindi then a couple of T20 international at Lahore to round out South Africa's tour. England's men are going there later this year to Pakistan for T20s as are England's women. I think they're going at the same time, if memory serves me correctly. We touched very briefly earlier, Jeff, on 2022 for Australia when they're meant to go there. According to the FTP, they're playing Pakistan away in three test matches. Now, yeah, that um, was originally slated for UAE. So. It was, but I mean, I'm just purely putting it out there that this isn't happening in a million years. It's happening next year. Mm. Next year, Australia will have to make a decision. Will they follow in the slipstream of South Africa and England and other countries that have been there, like Sri Lanka and the West Indies? Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe too. Or will they maintain the position they've had since 2008, which predates what happened, I should say, in uh, in 2009, the terrorist attack. Mm. It goes back a year before that that Australia were refusing to go to Pakistan. So, well, even um, that, 2001, was it when they were... No, three, 2003, when they were playing in Sharjah. They played test matches. Yes, so 2002, 2003, there was a, another instance as well where they played, yeah, neutral venue. So I guess the point here is is that there's a great opportunity here for Australian cricket to be able to support Pakistan and, and hopefully um, the federal government and, and all the other organisations that will play a role in helping inform that decision come to the view that this is good to go mm. because, gee, it's great watching cricket back in Pakistan again. Yeah, it would, it would be really meaningful to see Cricket Australia cancel a series in Pakistan rather than cancel a series <laughs> in the UAE. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, speaking of the UAE, that's where Ireland were playing Afghanistan yeah. last week. Uh, they played three one day as Afghanistan won all of them. Uh, the first by 16 runs, the second by seven wickets, and the third by 36 runs. Uh, Paul Sterling made a couple of centuries for the losing Irishman. Curtis Camphor made a couple of contributions, and as did Harry Tector. But Lorcan Tucker made a big score Lorcan in the first Tucker. game, made 83. This is important, I think, because this next group that are coming through, mm-hmm. so Camphor, for, Those I mean, three, Sterling, the three we just mentioned. Sterling's 28, but, but Tekta, Kampfer and Tucker, I mean, they are the three that they need to kick on. So even though it's it in a losing like effort... It sounds like some sort of military film at this point. Tekta, Kampfer, get Tucker back up to the barracks. <laughs> sir, but, yes, sir. But a good, but very, I mean, a, a comprehensive clinical performance from Afghanistan, winning 3-0. Rashid Khan was outstanding in the final game, making quick runs down the list before taking four for not many. And they've had a, a very impressive debutante behind the sticks, Jeff, who mm. we had a message from Jesse G, who's a, a regular correspondent of ours who loves watching Afghanistan. Afghanistan cricket, and he especially loved watching the debut of their new wicketkeeper. Yeah, Jesse had been corresponding with me about developing cricket countries, and we'd been making the observation that often spin bowlers are the first 
type of player they develop and that developing fast bowlers and good batters tends to take a longer period of time. So he was excited to message through saying, how about Ramanullah Gerbaz, a match-winning opening innings of 127 against Ireland on ODI debut? Really excited to watch him and the team grow over the coming years as they seem to have a promising generation coming through. So Jesse keeping a close eye on Afghanistan cricket, bless him, and uh, as, as will we as well. Yeah, some other big performances there. Hashmatullah Shahidi made an 82. Ramat Shah, who I think made 100 in yeah. the 2019 World Cup against someone. I can't quite put my finger on it, but he made a century in the second game. We've, of course, Mujib, who is you know, on the T20 circuit and, and making money, you know, hand over fist mm. as one of the, the, the quality mystery spinners in world cricket, picked up two for 40 off 10 in that first game where they were defending... Uh, 280 odd from memory so taken as a whole great series for Afghanistan still some green shoots for Ireland I was corresponding with their media manager Craig Easdown last night who is a listener to the final word and they've got a pretty healthy bank of games uh, they're preparing themselves for this year Ireland I mean they barely played in 2020 but they've got quite a bit on the agenda including a potentially a trip to the Netherlands for some games in in June so if they go ahead I will try to go I will yep. try to go, but time will tell. Well, Ramat Shah is there. He, he's their hope for a real class quality sort of first drop. He was batting at three uh, even before that World Cup last year. He'd made a number of... I don't think he made 100 at the World Cup, but he, I think he had five or six hundreds coming into that World Cup and he, right. he made a he made he got close to a ton in one of the games there. But he's the, your proper sort of Dravid style classy stroke maker who can hang around for a long time as well. So he's their hope as they play more test cricket as well, I think Ramat Shah. Uh, last series that's going on around the world this week, uh, West Indies and Bangladesh. Two test matches starting, well, today, Wednesday. Mm. One in Chittagong, then one in Dhaka. Always a good series just because the hashtag is We Bang. You know? <laughs> yeah, We Bang. Well, this is Bang We. Bang We. <laughs> bang we. Um, Bangladesh won the one day as three is, zip. Is, that's like the, the French word for the feeling when you're just tired of sleeping with people. Oh, I have a certain sense of Bang We. <laughs> Uh, so, that, yes, Bangladesh coming in after having won the 50 over games 3-0. Mm-hmm. I don't expect it'll be on television given uh, our experiences in recent weeks with Sri Lanka and Pakistan. But if it's somewhere to be found on the internet, we will locate it and we will share that link. <laughs> so, yes, that starts this week and then next week at Dhaka. Jeff, I think that's our trip around the cricketing world yep. done for another week. It's been enjoyable. Thanks for joining me here at Glenferry Oval. It's been beautiful watching people kick the footy and set up cones, do a bit of fitness as well, people walking dogs. It's a very narrow ground, but there's a lot of people here doing their thing. So Trying to kick footies into the shopping trolley. I like that. Yes, I like that a lot. Yeah, the lids. Yes, I remember, um, I remember watching my week of work experience here in 2000 as a year 10 student. I did a day in each department. I did a day with the footy department where I was, I was giving out the drink bottles for Peter Schwab out there as Hawthorne went and went through their paces in, a, in, in the build-up to 2001, a very, a very fun season. Anyway, long time ago. So that's it for us for the time being. We're going to throw to a conversation with Vatushina Hantaraja, who's previewing the other big series starting this week, India and England. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word.
This is the final word with Jeff Lemon, and joining me, I'm very pleased to have uh, arms across the sea to the virus capital of the world, the United Kingdom, Fedushana Hunteraja. Welcome back once again to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being someone to speak to today. You're my designated other person <laughs> who I don't live with. <laughs> uh, mostly, you're just pushing the window up and screaming out the window with a mask on to somebody over the road. <laughs> Hello, Barry. <laughs> Are you all right? Send word to the others. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. It's pretty shit ass at the moment, isn't it? There's no sugarcoating that. Yeah, it is. It is. We, as we were just talking before we um, we press record, that, uh, you know, I'd like to think that sport is helping, but, but no, I think the, the cold weather and the rain and the, um, the mutant strain, which you're apparently going to avoid now that you're not going to South Africa as the Australia team. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a new threat. So it's, it's ever-changing, but it's, um, I can't really complain, to be honest. I've, I've been pretty lucky with how it's gone so far. So the, the idea of England going to India for a test series, it seems like traditionally it's something that, that England cricket would be fairly nervous about going to India. You know, horrible things can happen when you tour India just in an on-field sense. Is it at the moment, is it sort of a relief to be thinking that there'll be some cricket to watch or is it like oh god a tour to India that's just another thing we didn't need <laughs> yeah I mean it's funny isn't it I think doing the jobs that we do sometimes we um I suppose I should be just talking for me here rather than you as well but I think sometimes I think like with the way the sport has just been barreling on you there has been I have been a little bit wary and then at the same time, you see the comments of people who are, you know, going through it every day. And test cricket naturally has always been a bit of release for people anyway. And so especially in these times, it's something that, yeah, people can look forward to. So I'm trying not to be too flippant about it. I did think the other day that, you know, Jack Leach, who suffers from Crohn's, who got a message from the NHS at the start of the pandemic saying that he was at risk. I realised actually the safest place for him to be is an England test squad in biosecure bubbles. So I'm, I'm pleased for him, let alone that he's going to be bowling on the subcontinent, as he has done already this year. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I am quite looking forward to it. You are right, it is quite a precarious place. You know, England have only won there once since 84, 85. And it's generally the place that we go to and we lose all kind of patience with our spinners mm. you know they they bowl so little throughout the summer and they're like why aren't they bowling all the overs yeah. here what is wrong with them <laughs> why didn't they get out Tendulkar, Laxman, Ganguly and Dravid <laughs> uh, so yeah so I'm, I'm looking forward to um, looking forward to being angry at people who don't deserve to be um, you know the object of my anger well you wrote about this uh, you wrote a long piece in the indie about England's spinners and the way England treats spinners and and the preparation that England gives spinners, I suppose. People can read that. But if you were to summarise that for, say, a podcast that you were on, how would you go about that summary? <laughs> well, I was having this conversation off the back of the Sri Lanka series where Bess and Leach took five wickets apiece in the, in the first test. Bess didn't bowl particularly well, and he was he was the first to admit that he got he got very lucky with that with that five for in the first innings. Then they bowled really badly in the first innings of the second test, and they were rubbish again. And then they helped England win by combining for eight wickets in the in the second innings. 
And I was talking to a mate of mine, and he's a cricket fan. Um, he doesn't work in cricket, but he was he was talking to me, and he was like, you know, how good are they? And I sat there for a bit, and I thought I was gonna you know recite the numbers, and I was like, you know what? I I have no idea because mm. I realised that I don't really have um, a good gauge on on what is good or bad spin until mm. I see the outcome, until I see. I've mentioned in the piece, I'll look at wickets, you look at maidens and economy rate, and through that game, mm. you've got an idea of how effective they were and how much control they had. And I realised like, in the in the moment that I, I was watching spin, as I was watching the ball being delivered, I didn't really know. It largely depended on, on how the batsman played it. And considering the top level of test cricket is exceptional players hitting good balls for four, that can be even harder to gauge, especially when you're going to a part of the world where they are very good at spin. And I suppose it's the kind of piece sometimes that can be written a bit like, why is no one smart like I am? Why don't they see that mm. like I do? Whereas, mm. like, fundamentally, it was a piece born out of my own ignorance when I thought, well, actually, like, what am I doing wrong here? Yeah. Why are our conversations so binary? Why was he, you know, why were we bigging them up one day and then a couple of days later telling them, you know, saying that they were shit and that India are going to run all over England? So, yeah, I, I spoke to a few people about it. I spoke to... Ashley Giles, who was panned during the 2005 series, to the extent that he he wrote this column in the Guardian, it, it, it read like a man who thought he was he had played his last test and he's like, right, I'm going to play some shots here. I'm going to get the machine gun out and, and go for a few people, and he ended up having quite a profound impact on on England series all told. And I realised, yeah, we we just have unreasonable expectations for our spinners who don't bowl very much during our summer, and who we, you know, I mentioned Graham Swan. In there, Graham Swan was one of the kind. He played for, you know, took 255 wickets under 30. And every spinner since then have been like, we, we need a Graham Swan. We need a Graham Swan. And, you know, even looking at his career, I realized he only played, he played for under five years. So he lifted our, I wrote, this is a line I put in the piece, but he lifted our expectations, but he didn't really change mm -hmm. the conversation. We were still as naive as we were before when talking about it and when dissecting spin. So that's basically it. Really. I feel like I've I've just ranted on there. And I've probably spoken more words than I actually wrote in the piece itself. <laughs> no, but it it it's fundamentally that thing of people who assess sport, and I, I guess I notice this more in cricket than anywhere else. But we assess it by um, outcome, but rather than process. If you want to use the the corporate language, we will talk about the runs someone did make or didn't make or the wickets they took or, or didn't, didn't take without actually having the information, the, the wisdom, the, the know-how to be able to assess how they're going about it and, and that, that's, that there's so much more importance in, like it, anyone can look at whether someone has succeeded or not and decide whether they've been successful. That doesn't require any skill whatsoever, but it's being able to look at, a spinner or a batsman or whatever before it's happened and say that the way they play indicates that they should be successful or that they have a likelihood of being successful and that, you know, so many of us who cover the game don't actually have that ability to assess the, the technical side of what a player does. We just assess the outcomes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, from a personal point of view, I would say a lot of what I know, well, I'd say all of what I know of Test Cricket is essentially secondhand information. We interview ex-players and we talk to coaches and we talk to current players and they'll give us nuggets that we'll we'll take on and bear in mind for the next time we, we come across the game. And certainly, you know, during the Sri Lanka series over here, we had the local Sky feed and I realised that all the all the pundits were, were batsmen. All batsmen who happened to be, you know, who captained England, who 
did great things in Test cricket. But, you know, broadly looking around English coverage, beyond Phil Tufnell, there aren't really too many regular spinners that you'd see in the media. So you rarely get mm. a kind of dissection anyway. And to be fair, if you, you know, if you've listened to Phil Tufnell, he, he's not so much about the, the technical side. He, he, he does speak about it very well, but he's mainly there to play the part of Phil Tufnell. Mm. And, and you notice this massively with Warren, don't you? I mean, like, I know it's a lot of dirty, rotten pizzas and flat caps apparently now. Peaky Blinders. I love the fact that Warley's only just seen Peaky Blinders. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, when he talks about spin, you're like, it, it, it sounds like he's, he's well, I mean, it's, for, for Warley, he's going off piece, but no one else can match that kind of insight in that way because he's lived it. And I think we could even discount the fact that he's one of the greatest spinners we've ever seen and we ever will see. But just the fact that it's you rarely hear someone talk about spin in that way. So, yeah, like I, I find myself, you know, thinking I should really consult this a bit more. I re- really should try and speak to different people, and rather than just you know, you know, keep reciting the same old tropes about it. Like I, I, another thing I wrote in the piece was like. We all catalogue the game in our own unique way, but we're all by doing that, I think quite a lot of us are, are guilty of carrying through the fallacies as well. Even, you know, things like the 30 average. There was a, a stat I looked up that since 2000, there have been something like 98 fast bowlers have taken 50 wickets or more and 40, I think, I think it was like 44, just under 50% of them had done so an average less than 30. 30 being the marker we assume for... Is good or bad. Yeah. But for a spinner, it was only 50-odd... or It was only 40-odd bowlers, and eight of them have done under 30. And you could probably guess eight of them, you know, some of the greats of the game. And and so even that needs recalibration when we we come to assess it, yeah. Do you think that when you're coming into an India tour, there can be a risk of too much thinking about spin bowling, that as uh, people from and anywhere outside India in terms of cricket, we we think India, we think spin, we think the spin quartets of the 70s. We think, okay, we've got to get round up every spinner in England and take them over. You've got to pick three spinners to start. You've got to have Bess and Leach and Moe and Ali and they've all got to be in the side. And it's not – to me it seems like that can be a trap if they don't actually happen to be your three best bowlers are you not better off picking the bowlers who are the best at what they do um, rather than worrying too much about the conditions, particularly given India now have so much in the way of fast bowling as well. They don't need a spinner's wicket necessarily. They don't They don't have to come in and, and prepare a wicket for three spinners and they may not because they've got Kuldeep Yadav and they've got Ravachandran Ashwin and then they might pick Washington Sundar as, as an all-rounder as well, but he's he's off-spin as well, the same as Ashwin. So they wouldn't necessarily want to go a three-spinner route. They might be wanting something that has more in it for the quick bowlers. And if you turn up on day one and, and suddenly it's it's got grass on the wicket and it's going to be faster, that can happen in India these days. Um, they're willing to do that to favour their seam attack if if it seems like the right time for it. Definitely, yeah. There, there was, um, there's even talk that this... Uh, Chennai pitch for the first test is is got a tinge of green on it, so yeah, I, I totally I totally agree with you that it, the idea of like front loading all your spinners and to rock up on that on that toss and be like, oh shit, <laughs> and at the same time, you know, I, I think there's I think a lot of the the fear about India comes from 
England teams of the past having those attacks of 80 mile an hour trundlers and thinking, God, they're just going to get, yeah, they're just going to get battered. But we, we saw, you know, um, Anderson and Broad gave England something to think about in the way they performed in the respective tests in Sri Lanka. So um, I, I definitely, I, I think they'll, I mean, they'll only go with, with two spinners for this first test. Uh, it'll be Leach and one of Bess or, or Moeen, depending on how Moeen's pulled through. And then with, with Stokes back, an archer's going to play. It'll be one of Broad or Anderson, probably Broad. So they'll, they'll, be, they'll have their bases covered, I think. Yeah, they won't, they won't, they're not going to put all their eggs in the spin basket. And then as far as the squad rotation stuff goes, this is quite a funny one because as soon as Ed Smith said they were going to be rotating players in and out of the squad, given that they have to spend all their time in quarantine bubbles, I thought that sounds eminently sensible and also he's going to cop shit for it as soon as something goes wrong with it. And and it doesn't... And, and going wrong with it doesn't necessarily mean someone playing badly. It can also be someone playing well. So as soon as Johnny Bairstow made some runs in Sri Lanka, they're like, what? you know, there were people arcing up saying, well, oh, he shouldn't be sent home. Why is he not going to be there? He should be in India. As soon as Josh Butler made some runs, why is he going home? He's got to go to India. And this idea that you sort of, you have to knee jerk as soon as someone succeeds in a single match, you've got to throw the plan out the window and just hang on to them for grim death like they did with Stuart Broad last year. Oh, we'll rotate the bowlers. Oh, Oh, Brody took some wickets. Oh, he's got to stay in now. You can't leave him out now, you know. So it seems like this is going to happen again, except there won't be the ability to back down on those changes because those players will have been sent back to England and there's nothing you can do about it. But it feels to me like certain sections of the, um, with a, a conservative outlook in the British media will just not stop banging on about this for the next couple of months. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where, you know, people were saying, well, you know, why does Johnny Besto need a rest? He's only played two games. And it's the idea that to ensure something's not broken, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any thought about that. We should break it first and then fix it. We shouldn't stop it from being broken. <laughs> break their brains and then we'll fix their brains. It's, yeah, it, I, I think it's, a, it's a, a really good measure. Yeah, I, I did, uh, just as you did, I anticipated that there would be a, a bit of blowback to it. And to be fair, I'd be lying to say that I hadn't, written about that being something that they would consider because I think partly because of the reaction to it they they were they also made a note of saying that oh you know but it but it is it is quite flexible and then at the same time a player especially when we when you chat to players on the record they're never going to be like no I want to I want to go home because of the insinuation to certain frothing members of the um, well he's soft he's soft isn't he look at him he's soft he didn't want to stay in India for nine months <laughs> my favourite one is, uh, well, if he doesn't want to do it, I'll do it. It's like, I'd rather he didn't, actually. Like, yeah. I mean, he's got yeah. Test 100. I don't know what you've done. You don't even have your own photo on your Twitter handle. I'm, I'm much more tr- trusting yeah. Johnny Bairstow than you, mate. Right. Yeah, you, you currently have, uh, that looks like the logo of uh, Watford Football Club, I think. Um, I think we'll be fine, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, unless those numbers in your Twitter handle are your test runs, I'm totally okay with with Johnny Bester. Yeah, oh, six thousand nine hundred and sixty-nine. Well, that is quite a haul, Brian. Well done. But it's funny because you, you'll get this, you'll get a lot of people saying, you know, when you take, for example, Ben Sto- Ben Folks will go on a tour and not play, and be like, God, he's on tour all the time and he's not playing. What is that going to do to his mental health? Hmm. It's like, yeah, it's a, that's a a very a very very true concern, and it's good of you to to care about that. And then suddenly it's like. Why is he going home so early, the soft cut? <laughs> <laughs> like, e- even like the size of the squad, you know, they- they've tried to do what they can in, in having 
big squads to to cope mm. with the various challenges. You know, little things like as you saw in the India series, having to have net bowlers is is something that they have to consider now. You can't just one of the things they used to say about India is that you go there and there are so many people who play the game and and just want to bowl all day that you can. You know, KP used to say that he would round up some spinners from the street and be like, just bowl at me all day, <laughs> which sounds a little bit like a throwback to the empire, but let's breeze past that. <laughs> <laughs> just rounding up people and getting them to do what you want. Yeah. yeah the, the thing about India is that there's just so many people who enjoy bringing you lunch that I would just walk out to the street and say, who wants to bring me lunch on a nice tray? And they would just come and do it voluntarily. Honestly, they say nothing. They just hold your umbrellas. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> They really love fanning you with those big oversized palm leaves. They love it. <laughs> I think that's why they're such good players of spin. The wrists. Are so <laughs> the <manageable>. wrists. <laughs> but the, um, I do enjoy it. The, the England team have made a, a old one of the um, selectors have made a note of saying, but no, 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 he's not. Uh, James Bracey, he's not in the squad. He's, he's part of the group, but he's not in the squad. And then he'll, hey. when, when Butler leaves and Besto, um, Besto comes back, but Ben and folks is keeping. So Bracey is now the alternate, but he's not quite part of the squad. Mm. I understand what they're trying to do, but it's very kind of, um, yeah, it's very British politicking, I think. Right, right. So so they're like, squad goals, guys. Not you, James Bracey. You're sorry. These are not your goals. Group goals include you, not squad goals. Do you think that's how things used to work at the polyphonic spree? It's like you're not yes. in the band. Like you're in the group, yeah. but you're not in the band. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, we don't have tuba players in the band. We do have them in the group. If you're part of the extended choir, that's outside the group and the band, but you are in the choir. Uh, <laughs> you, you still get one of the robes. That's the most important thing. In a way, aren't we all part of the England squad, apart from yeah. James Bracey? Yeah, in, in a way, in a way. Aside from Mason Crane, Zakeeb Mahmood, Matt Parkinson, Ollie Robinson and Amar Verdi. It was interesting that Mason Crane's in that outside group as a wrist spinner so there's no wrist spinner in the squad they've got three finger spinners in the squad but no option if they decide that they want someone who actually gives it more of a tweak um, if they if they get a pitch susceptible to that so it's it's a curious one I, I was I was trying not to be too down on England's chances but you know I was writing about it the other day and looking at the squads next to each other and you just you think oh Jesus Christ it's it looks like a mismatch you look at that Indian squad, and there are, you know, there are a bunch of of players from who had their heroics at Brisbane who can't even get in the team because other players are coming back. I mean, Kyle Rahul's fit again and won't be able to get into the eleven. Presumably, you open up with Shubman Gill and Rohit Sharma. You've got Pajara being the rock at three, and then you've got Kohli Rahane, and then presumably Rishabh Pant at six, and then maybe Washington Sundar at seven. That is some fast batting. You know, if, if all of those guys decide to go on one day with, with Pajara just in the middle and everyone else going from the other end, like, Jesus Christ, you could be on for some 600-run days of test cricket out there. Not even that, but the idea that Coley's watching the Australia series unfold from afar and the way it finished and not thinking, right, I, I have a bloodlust to be part yeah. of this now. Yeah, I mean, he's going to be absolutely savage. I think I totally agree with you about the mismatch thing, but I think that's more on India than it than it is on England. I think if you look at the the England squad beyond obviously you know resting best though, I, I think that's that's as good as England have right now. I think they've they got into a situation where they they decided to stop chewing up and spitting out openers, and so they've ended up with with three very competent ones. You've got that middle order of of root. 
Stokes and Butler, if only for the first test, which um, is is the best that they could have. Um, <laughs> yeah, as I mentioned, you know, best and not being at three is obviously a bit of a problem. But yeah, the the fact that it is a mismatch is solely because this India side have yeah just kept on the journey they've been on for the last few years, and it's kind of freakish. I, th- I think the so it's a, a four a.m. start in the UK, which means I have to get up at three, and while it being no great tax at all to to do my job, loads of people, I, I only found this out when I was tweeting photos of my cup of coffee during Sri Lanka, but apparently loads of other people get up that early as well. It's crazy. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Some people just do it voluntarily. Absolute weirdos. <laughs> Some people go into hospital and, and to work at that time. Man, <laughs> really. I thought I was yeah. the only key worker. Well, d- 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 DC, the editor of our podcast, gets up at like 3am to go and work in breakfast radio and then records the show. We often exchange emails between 3 and 5 in the morning when I haven't gone to bed yet and he's already got up. And, we're, you know, that's the overlap of our working day. So, look, some people can do it and some cannot. But it's going to be, um, be a... It's one of those things. It will be it will be long, long, long days covering it if if it's just India batting. But you know you've listed through the names there, and there's I don't think there's one player that you can think. Well, I might go and make breakfast now. Maybe for Jara actually, but only because you feel confident that he'll still be in the same position when you get back. You're like, I'm not going to miss much. It's not that he's not worth watching because I thoroughly enjoyed watching his defensive masterclasses because he was out of nick in the Australian series. He like he was actually not in great touch he was edging a lot he was playing false shots against Nathan Lyon a lot and what happened was he still didn't get out even when he was edging a lot because he plays so softly at the ball he still found ways to protect his wicket even though he wasn't middling it and I thought that was fascinating to watch just on his own so yeah on on home tracks he could be um, a frightening proposition and then Jasper Boomer is fit again Ishan Sharma's fit again they've got Shardul Tucker still in the squad as well they've got Mahmoud Siraj still in the squad so so if they want to go all fast bowling, they can do that as well. They've got that option if if there is a bouncy deck at some point in those four tests. Yeah, yeah. I was quite kind of quite quietly optimistic that maybe England would take one test, and that you've talked me out of that as well. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it'd be it'd be a great series to watch. I, I don't know if you've been following the, um, the the TV wranglings over here, but it sounds like it's, there's a very good chance um, that it's going to be on terrestrial TV on on Channel Four. Yeah, that's right. So on on free to air TV, the first test series since oh five. Like, what what does that mean? Yeah, I mean it's going to mean a huge deal. I, to be honest, I, I've come, I've I think I've come full circle on on free to air TV because t- to me, I think you know people just want things for free, and I, and I think I, I totally appreciate that. You know, it'd be cricket in this in this country in the United Kingdom is just not meritocratic at all you need money to to play the game and you need, you need money to watch the game so uh, you know it's no surprise when we you t- when we see what we saw over last summer not just with the anti-racism stuff but more broadly when we're when the game was looking in on itself and realizing like god we've got no diversity we've got a social diversity but you know no economic diversity and stuff like that and it's been a hobby horse of a, of a few people over the years about the lack of state school educated cricketers in the England team or even close to the England team. But, you know, the, while the viewing habits of the younger generations have changed massively, it is such a huge deal because, you know, Jonathan Liu wrote a piece in The Guardian yesterday about how sometimes because of the way cricket has gone in this country over the last 20 years, 
it's not even about reclaiming or getting new fans. It's about reclaiming the old ones and the lapsed ones mm. who thought, right, I've, I've been pushed out of the game for through one way or another. Or I've just forgotten about cricket. You know, it, it wasn't there, so I didn't think about it. But if it is there, then I might. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like you'd be able to tell me it better, but it sounded like Australia were kind of going through their own thing. Is, am I right with the kind of Channel Seven, B, Channel Ten BBL stuff? Is that am I on something there or? Yeah, in that there's a fair chunk of the BBL that ended up on pay TV only, plus all of the Australian, you know, national team one day games and T Twenty games. So, particularly given that. Both the networks were trying to milk everything they could out of Coley being there. Coley was there for the six white ball games and one test match, which meant that you know the pay station got a lot more mileage out of him than than the free to air network. So yeah, there's there's that kind of tension back and forth. And and for as much as anyone can say, oh, everybody watches things on the internet now, a lot of people do, but there are still millions of people who can't afford that they don't have the devices they don't have the internet connections they don't have the subscriptions they don't have the money for it and so basically if you say that oh well poor people don't get to watch cricket because it's never going to be on the free tv that they can access then you know you're you're shutting out a whole um social portion you know portion of your society from the game yeah yeah there'll also be that um that interesting thing i I know it happens in australia as well where Cricket overseas doesn't really matter unless it's an Ashes. Mm. So it'd be interesting to see sort of how the, um, you know, if, if it is on Channel 4. But by the time this goes out, probably it'll be already sorted. So we might be talking about this for nothing. But if, if it does end up there, then, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see the kind of the chatter about the England team. Because it, you'll remember that the 2019 World Cup, it was a last minute play to um, to get it on on Channel 4. Because it was, anou- it was announced before the... The Australia semi-final at Edgbaston, actually, and it was a little bit like it would, be, it would be so English cricket that they finally do something good and then they lose <laughs> to the semi-final before they get the chance to get to our TV. The Australia New Zealand final for the World Cup is on Channel Four, with approximately thirty-two people watching. Yeah, but if you if you press the red button, you can watch Grand Design, so don't worry. <laughs> What uh, are you looking forward to about this series? Uh, is there any particular thing that's that's tickling your uh, vish tickly bits? What am I looking forward to? No, it'll be nice to see Joffre Archibald again. Um, it feels like it's been been a while. I think you know you you running through that um, you th- running through that batting card. I think a lot of I don't think England, you know I don't think England are going to win this series. I, I would count it as a success if they were able to take one test off India but you know you, you've you've covered a lot of these series before where the individuals can take take something out of it it would be quite nice to see Leach and Bess you know do some things and um, at least come out of this relatively unscathed or not, not just unscathed but with with, uh, with something to shout about and and Moen Ali you know he's returning to cricket <coughs> after so long he he's you know one thing that's been in particular who I don't think we'll we'll fully appreciate because he averages 35 and that is a sin and his you know his batting has um certainly had fallen off a cliff in in red ball so it'd be nice to see him come back in and, and do some yeah just you know he, he's had a good time of it in india with the bat he kind of started book into the series in 2016 with with centuries in fact the last century was scored at chennai four years ago was his last test century so it'd be nice to to have him return Turn to Red Bull cricket after a year or so out and um, and do well, but um, 
Yeah, I think probably now that I've kind of said it out loud, I think Moeen, yeah, Moeen coming back in and, and doing well, and you know he's thirty three now, so he's not got too long left in the game as a, a top flight Test cricketer, as it were. So it'd be nice to see him kind of come through and, and potentially be out there in Australia come the end of the year. I think he certainly feels he's got a lot of unfinished business in Test cricket, and I think a lot of that is around Australia, particularly how <coughs> Lyon had him on toast. So yeah, fingers crossed for him. All right, you will be up at 3am to watch it. We will be watching it as well and doing the final word dailies. So we shall trade notes with you as we go on through the series. Fadushana Hunter-Asha, thanks for joining The Final Word once again. Thank you for having me once again. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, we are saying goodbye from Glenferry Oval. First of all, we'll say some thank yous. The first of those to Vidush and Ahantaraja, who made time for us. It's always a busy week for Vish around the start of a series, but it was great to get his insight. And, of course, we're going to be back with that India Daily from Friday, as we mentioned off the top. Thank you to all of our patrons who contribute to what we do on patreon.com forward slash the final word. A lot of different nerd pledges have come in since the Marcus Stoinis interview from two weeks ago, and we're grateful for it. Uh, thank you to anybody who's subscribed on iTunes and dropped a little review or a rating. All of that helps to to spread the word and to, to share uh, what we're doing here a couple of times a week on The Final Word, firstly with the weekly show, and then with story time when we go through the nerd pledges on the Patreon page. The Final Word is a show on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. They have lots of shows. You can go and look at them. Some of them are about books. Some of them are about comedy. Some of them are about other sports. There are things that you might be interested in. Uh, Check that out. David Collins edits the podcast week to week. I've been watching these guys kick the footy at this trolley for about 20 minutes now, and they haven't got one in. (laughs) Sort your lives out, fellas. Um, I think that's it for us. Uh, Thanks for listening. Tell people about the show if you want, and uh, we'll be back with you very shortly. Yeah, we'll be back on Friday with the first India Daily of the series against India. We cannot wait. I had to go about it.